Well, let me uh, ask, you know, uh, what brings us together uh, uh, first uh, and foremost here is the Solid Sound Festival at Mass Mocha uh, later in June. And um, uh, you'll be appearing there. And uh, the festival is uh, showcasing some films uh, that weekend, including some of the uh, uh, documentary films that were made by Alan Lomax. But I see that Bill Morrison's film, The Great Flood, is on the program as well. And um, uh, tell us what you'll be doing at Solid Sound. Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, this, actually what you just said. <laughs> I'm excited. I didn't even know about the Alan Lomax film. So I've just barely cracked the surface of checking out who's going to be there. So I've been excited all along that this is happening, but I'd love a chance to see those Alan Lomax films. I think think they're going to be on a loop through the weekend. The sort of formal presentation of them will begin on Friday evening, but... um, Oh, wow, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His films, uh, films on Appalachia and on New Orleans. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, so I'll be... The, one of the things is this project I've been doing for... Uh, it's a few years now. Bill Morrison made a film It's called The Great Flood, and it's... it's a, I don't want to call it a documentary. It's not... Uh, I don't know quite how to describe <laughs> this. It's it's more of impressionistic or poetic vision, or uh, using it uses old archival footage that he's gathered from all kinds of sources, but showing the story of the 1927 Mississippi River flood, which was, you know, just this gigantic, catastrophic, horrible situation down there that uh, had a such such a I mean really so much happened leading up to it and the effect it had on the really on the history of this country is mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a great book about it called Rising Tide that really follows the whole, I don't know when it starts, even in early 1800s, the history of the the river and how it was managed and all the politics around it and the, you know, as, as technology developed and started putting bridges across it and figuring out how to deal with it with the you know the levees and mm-hmm. the whole levee system and all the corruption and you know the it's a kind of a disturbing thing to or revealing about what's what's even still going on now with mm-hmm. you know if you what happened back then it's not hard to see what was happening with Katrina and you know all that so uh, sure. anyway mm-hmm. I, I I shouldn't get into all that but but uh 
it's an amazing, it's been an incredible, uh, inspiring learning experience with me, with, with Bill Morrison and the band in the process of working on this thing. Um, he, we've, we've done other films together in the past, but never really from the ground up where, where the music and the, the making of the film were happening at the same time. This is the first mm-hmm. time we got to do that. And so we, early on, we traveled together as he was going to different places trying to find the footage. We were, we went to New Orleans and up the river through Memphis and St. Louis and Davenport, Iowa. Mm-hmm. with the band right at the same time I was trying to write the music so so now when we see the film it, it and well what the other amazing thing is when we did it the river was actually flooding again mm-hmm. this was like oh boy when was it three years ago or maybe it's even four years ago in the spring and there was a huge flood so you know we were actually in Vicksburg or we were in some of the places that you see in the film sure Mm -hmm. uh, Helena Arkansas and standing on these levees as the water was right up at the edge of the levee and the town is down below and so now when we see the these images from however long ago it's almost I guess 90 years ago or Mm. whatever yeah it's it really adds weight to what we're playing, you know. Mm. And is your score for the film, um, now, that is integrated into the Bill Morrison film, so that when one watches The Great Flood, one is also hearing um, your score and, and its performance by the, is it the quartet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the at the festival, we're doing it live. Wow. But if, with, yeah, but um, there's a DVD available with with the. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. actually taken from a live performance because we've been we've been doing it now all over the place for the last few years. Oh, I see. So that you are, the film will be screened at Mass Mocha, and you'll be performing uh, the music that you had created for it originally, or, or are you still? Yeah. In, yeah. Okay. Is it, is it a composed score or is there? Well, yeah, but it's a, it, you know, it's sort of the structure of it is like, um, it's almost put together in chapters, like each, it, again, it's hard to describe this because it's not, you know, there's no dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's there's only a sort of like a title at the <laughs> at the beginning of each chapter. You know, there's a right. it, it 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 shows the you get an idea of how the you know, there was a long period of, of rain and the waters building up and people are knowing something's coming. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, you get that picture and then but then it goes into some of the actual, like the dynamiting of, of levees to mm-hmm. where they're making these decisions about, the, you 
know, there's so much water, they have to decide where are we going to let the water loose. And as usual, it's, well, there's some poor people on this side and there's some rich people on that side. I think maybe we'll just, let's dump this all on the poor people, you know. Mm-hmm, sure. um, or or then there's there's a whole section of, there was sort of a propaganda program going on to show how, you know, there's a whole section with the politicians coming down there and getting their picture taken, smiling with all the poor people. And, mm-hmm. and then there's the, you know, it was just a horrible, the, the, you know, with the racial yeah. thing was just not, not a good, where the, white people were the first to be evacuated and the sure. the black people were kept there at gunpoint in camps on the levees to try to repair the thing you know mm-hmm. stuff like it's it just it's just a horrible thing yeah it's really uh, i mean there's uh, you know a fair amount of um uh, attention has been uh, paid this because in part because there is so much archival uh, footage of the event um, that um, it's one of the most uh, uh, gripping and, and bald-faced uh, expositions of of really down and dirty racism. And, um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, just, it's it's incredible actually that there's like it wasn't like a an earthquake or a tornado or something. It was the way the flood worked. It was. They actually knew it was. They could predict. Mm-hmm. Well, they, you know, the water is so high in such and such a place, and we know that two days from now it's going to be in such and such a place. So they would send photographers and and filmmakers to a spot where they knew it was going to happen, and they could set up their cameras and stuff, and so. Yeah, there is. It's it's really amazing what kind of stuff, what documents there are from this. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the details that I learned of it was that um, one of the administrators who was uh, you know deputized by uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, I think it was, was uh, Walker Percy's uncle, who was a somewhat famous novelist, William Alexander Percy. And a, and a major figure around Clarksdale and Oxford, Mississippi, and um, and he, um, you know, had the dark stain of being the, uh, you know, kind of vicious administrator of the kind of policies that you're describing there that uh, right, that right. Uh, discriminated so uh, uh, brutally uh, uh, toward the poorest and the darkest uh, of people. Um, yeah. I remember Nicholas Lemon's uh, wonderful book called The Promised Land, which is about the black migration primarily from the Delta to Chicago, uh, made note that while William Alexander Percy was uh, the most famous resident of the Delta during that period, the irony was that Muddy Waters was the most famous sort of, um, you know, descendant of that same uh, milieu, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> and funny how justice kind of plays out in odd ways like that, you know, C- cultural justice in a way. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, and then the, <clears throat> musically, you know, it's, it, it's just 
it was such a well it, it's such a great setup for music when you mm. think wow that's you know this is such a part of what you know that transition from someone playing a guitar on their porch to going up to Chicago and getting an electric guitar as things, you know, as the technology grew and the, the volume got louder and things got more crowded and all that. It sort of, it mirrors the development of music from folk music to rock and roll or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a way oversimplification, but... Yeah. Well, well, let me add a little bit to that simplification, which is that, you know, if conditions not been so brutal uh, in the Delta and in other parts of the South, you know, how different things might have been just in terms of, you know, migratory patterns of populations and muddy waters, for all we know, could have remained, um, you know, uh, a guy playing, uh, you know, an acoustic in a a juke joint for decades rather than a guy who found he needed to amp up to be heard in Chicago. yeah, uh, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, as long as we're in a subject area like this for the moment, uh, I'd like to ask you to you just your thoughts or what kind of impact uh, you experienced maybe when you were a younger musician, um, uh, you know, through the music of B.B. King, the recently deceased B.B. King. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was uh, one of those guys that just seemed like he would, well, he is, has been here forever for me because it was, well, it was really in high school that I was getting really, really super fired up about music and things were, you know, it seemed like every day I would discover something new and more and more amazing. And so, you know, I, I'm talking about from the time... I guess I got an electric guitar when I was 14. Is that right? Something like that. <laughs> 14. And, and you know, when I think of what happened in the from that point over the next even just two or three years, it, that, that really, like, almost, there was so much stuff coming in so much discovery and uh, like just moving from one thing to another so fast and, you know, hearing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and then the Rolling Stones and then that led to hearing people like Muddy Waters and and almost right away B.B. King, you know, he, he he was one of those that I heard early on that that just was an inspiration for my whole life, you know, and then getting to see him, you know, I saw him on television back then in the 60s and stuff, but then uh, I guess the first time I saw him live was I was in Boston and it was like, 1975 or 1976 at it was at Paul's Mall oh yeah, yeah. and you know not a 
not a big arena. It was a club, you know, and I was, I was in the front row, just right. I was literally, you know, a foot from the, from the band. And so the band comes out and they start playing and it's like, I'm just flipping out like, man, this is, you know, this, they sounded just so amazing. I'm, but he hadn't even come out yet, but it was already like, wow, this is like so happening. I couldn't believe it. And then he walks out, you know, ladies and gentlemen, BB King or whatever. And then he comes out and he just, he played this one, just one note. And it was like, <laughs> oh my God, I couldn't believe I, I don't think I've ever heard that kind of a power, like everything It was just suddenly everything was in focus in in the most intense, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just uh, I I don't know like the the rhythmic power and just everything became clear in that one note. It was I mean like Miles Davis had that or I don't know I guess. You hear it in different ways, but mm-hmm. anyway, it was just it was unbelievable. And to be that close to it, and I never got to meet him or anything, but mm. but to hear him like that, and then it was one of those nights. James Cotton was in Boston, just playing somewhere else, and then you know, an hour later, he showed up <laughs> and he just walked on stage, and they were, "Hey, man, you know what's happening?" And, they, and then they just started. They started playing, and it was like this unbelievable night. Yeah, I saw BB in that week at Paul's Mall too, but I oh, wasn't. Oh, really? I, I wasn't there that night with Cotton. Um, oh man! And, and that and that proved to be um, <clears throat> uh, a door opener of another kind for um, someone I know, and I'm forgetting the story in the moment. But um, yeah, I saw BB literally dozens, dozens of times. Uh, and uh, beginning in '69, and so. Oh vir- wow! Yeah, I didn't see him that far back. That, yeah, virtually that. every show he ever played in the Boston area from '69 to '79 or so, I was there. And but I only wow. caught one night of that uh, that week at Paul's Mall, or it was two or three nights at least that he was there at Paul's Mall, and and yeah, that was um, that was up close, man. That was about yeah. as close as I got to BB too. Um, <laughs> Which was great. Yeah, then I, you know, I saw him later, and but you know, it'd be in a gigantic stadium or something, which was that's great too. <laughs> nothing like in a club, right? Mm. But he's he was you know he was a part of that so much the the moment in time when I when I knew that I wanted to. It was just becoming very, very clear that music was what my life was going to be, and then he—he he was one of those larger than life, you know, the really setting the standard for, for just such an inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Do, do you recall relating that story that you just told about BB at Paul's Mall somewhere else in the last couple of weeks? I well, they asked. I got, I'm just wondering if I read that somewhere else because I've been. I wrote about BB my own memorial, and I recorded a tribute to him for, 
you know, our news. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, they were, right. I, I was asked by, is it, I think Jazz Is or Jazz Times? Jazz I'm Times. Sorry. And, yeah. and I, I told that story oh. about seeing him there. Okay. Yeah, I th- that, that rang a bell and I thought, oh man, that must have been just in the last few weeks that I read that, um, a story of yours, but glad to hear it again. Thank you. You grew up around Denver, right? Yeah, yeah. And did you connect with the jazz scene in Denver as a teenager? Well, well much later. I mean, I, you know, I didn't... It, it was, like I said, in high school, it was... Like, think about B.B. King, and then that was within... Like I said, things were coming at me so fast. Like, mm-hmm. I would hang out at this, there was a place called the Denver Folklore Center, which is actually still, it's not in the same location, and it's, you know, it's not quite what it was back mm-hmm. then. Sure. But, it was, you know, it was this hangout <clears throat> place kind of close to downtown Denver, and I took some guitar lessons there, and I would just, stand around sort of you know I was young and I just they had a record store and then they had a guitar shop and they had they gave lessons and they had a little stage where people would perform it was an amazing meeting place for people and I I just sort of hang around in the record store and overhear conversation. So much stuff I found out just by sort of listening to what the older, hipper, cooler-looking people were talking about, you know. <laughs> like, that's how I found out about Paul Butterfield or... Hmm. And, and Or then the next week I'd go and someone would say, yeah, Paul Butterfield, he's cool, but, you know, have you heard this, there's this blah, 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 Junior Wells or this or that. And, sure. You know, and one thing would just lead to another. So, but around that time, so then I'm I'm sort of in just finding out about stuff and my, my band director at school, there was a talent show coming up and he knew I played guitar. And so this time I'm really, at this point I'm really into blues and trying to find out about that there was a dance these girls did this dance routine thing for the show where they were dancing to a West Montgomery song Thumping on Sunset oh. and the the band director said do you think you could said, I think it's kind of it's not really cool that they're doing it to the record it would be so much better if if there was live music and do you think he could learn this song? So he gave me this West Montgomery record and that was the first time I heard West Montgomery. And that, again, that was another one of those, like talk about having your brains blown out. So that was a huge turning point. You know, I, I went home and I tried to somehow pick out the song. Luckily, you know, as a, Kind of, it was that particular song was like a perfect link between what I had been listening to before and what it led me to later. But mm-hmm. so I could 
kind of pick it out and learn it enough so that it was recognizable, I guess. <laughs> and we played it for the talent show, and, you know, everybody flipped out. It was a great success and everything. And But then it was that what was a... I think it was then, up until then, I had... Um, everything I'd done on the guitar was just kind of, you know, getting together with my friends or strumming along with records and totally self-taught, you know. Or I would have a lesson here or there, but it wasn't really... I hadn't really taken it that far, I guess. And anyway, it was at that point where I, I... It's like, man, I have to find a, a real teacher. And so luckily I... There's a guy, Dale Bruning, in Denver that mm-hmm. I found, and he became my teacher, and he was... So when you say the jazz scene in Denver, that's, for me, that's what that... Meeting him brought me into this... Just a whole world where I've pretty much been ever since. <laughs> and he he um, he had come from... <clears throat> Well, he grew up in Philadelphia and was New York, like the East Coast, sort of in the more active playing there in the late 50s, early 60s, before he moved to Denver. And so he brought with him all this, you know, stories of playing with Percy Heath or, or mm-hmm. his you know, he was he was like the real deal jazz guy <laughs> coming from the East Coast. And, you know, he was the one that told me about Charlie Parker and Sonny Rollins. And he introduced me to Jim Hall when Jim Hall came to town. And it's just, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and he knew Wes Montgomery. And he, he, it was, that was well, that was amazing. Well, he knew Wes, huh? Wow. Uh, and you, pardon me. You were friends. I, this is veering way off, but well, you were friends with Pejori. Sure, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was another. <laughs> no, like, yeah. Tell us I don't about know if that. We should talk about that. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of these. I just can't even. It's. I don't know how these things work out. These connections but let me just interrupt the uh you for a moment here bill to just clarify that you're um talking about the uh, painter charles kajori um and uh, i know a formative kind of influence that he had uh on your um uh, life and um and just for you know the purpose of people listening in that um uh yes i knew kajori but but i was watching um an interview with you several years ago that was filmed, I think, at the Walker Arts Center. And near, it was a quite long interview, maybe about two hours long or so, but um, somewhat near the end of it, you uh, began telling the story of Kajori. And, um, and it, was, it was great to hear you doing that. And, and I knew of that story anyway, because I knew Kajori so well. And, and he and I used to go to see you with Paul Motion and, uh, and Joe Lovano at the Vanguard. So... Um, you know, when you wrote to Kajori, 
he alerted me to that, you know, kind of right away at the time. But but wow. go ahead. For, for, for the sake of everyone else who doesn't know this story so well, uh, I, I would love for you to share it uh, uh, for our listeners uh, uh, today. Yeah, I mean, I don't, this is, well, yeah, as my life goes on, it's just, I can't believe these things happen. But, so when I was a kid, so my father, I grew up in Denver, I have to almost go back to the very beginning, and I grew up in Denver, I was born in Baltimore, but my father was a biochemist who got his degree at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, where I was born. Mm-hmm. And But almost immediately after I was born, we moved to Denver. And my father got a job at the University of Colorado Medical School. And it was there that he met uh, Florian Kajori, Charles Kajori's father. Right. They I believe they worked together for a while at the at the medical school and became close friends. And but Kajori's father was much older than my father. My father was the same age as Kajori. Right. Yep. So mm-hmm. but see if I can if you can follow me here. But but really from the time I was, um, even my, I remember later on asking my mother, like from basically my whole life as a child, my, my parents were close with Kajori's parents, but every once in a while, Kajori would come visit Denver and we'd have a dinner at our house or at their house or something. And my father and Kajori's father would be talking about whatever. I couldn't even understand what they were talking about, like biochemistry and all this stuff. It would just, the conversation would get like way out of, like I wouldn't know what was going on. Plus they seemed like more like old, you know, squares, you know. And then there's this guy, it was so wild because he was, he was the age of my parents, but he would show up and he'd have, he'd be wearing jeans and, and like tennis shoes. And mm-hmm. he was from New York and he was like this amazingly cool guy <laughs> who would actually talk to me that I could relate to, you know, but he was, he was older, but he was like this super hip guy, <laughs> you know, talking about New York and he would tell me these stories about jazz and stuff and so by the time I got to I think the last time back then I saw him was I remember actually it's weird how I can picture these things but he brought over a Thelonious Monk record there's there's two things I remember very clearly like he he brought this I can see the cover of this Thelonious Monk record that he brought to show me and he was talking about hearing Tony Williams he's talking about this young kid drummer playing with Miles Davis mm-hmm. and at the Village Vanguard and sitting underneath his cymbal <laughs> and like 
I, I just remember that story. Like, I didn't know who Tony Williams was or who Monk was or who any of this stuff, but it, it just made such an impression on me. And that Monk record, I think that was the first time I ever heard Thelonious Monk, mm-hmm. ever. Do you remember the cover, what record it was? Yeah, it was that, is it called Crisscross? Oh, yeah. Something? It's, mm-hmm. it's like a green, I think, it, and it sort of has a mirror image of, uh, that that the one? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it, I think, anyway, it was Crisscross. Was the, I think that was the name of the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly the name of one of Monk's Columbia recordings yeah, of was, the early to mid-60s. Yeah. One of those, mm-hmm. and you know, and I'm sure some of this gets a little fuzzy, but <laughs> but that was I'm talking about maybe 1967 or something like that mm-hmm. when that was the last time I saw him, and I knew he was a painter, but um, I didn't really know much about it or anything, and then. Years and years and years and years go by, and I it just sort of somehow he came back. You know, I didn't know I didn't know him well. I'm just saying that he he made these impressions on me, and then I think I asked my mother about him at some point. She said, "Oh yeah, he used to come. You know, even when I was a baby, he would come by the house and mm. stuff, and and but." Then with the, you know, the internet comes along, and then one day I was just thinking, I wonder what that, I knew he was a painter, and I knew he lived in New York, and blah, blah, blah. So I looked on the internet, and I mean, this is not that long ago, it's, uh, oh boy, I, I'm really getting bad with when it actually my my, rec- my recollection is it's about 12... 14 years ago. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And so I, I looked on there and it was like, oh my God, that's him. And it was like, it just, all this stuff came up about what he did and what is, you know, was, and my wife's a painter also. So it was like, we were looking at this like, wow, what, this is, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it was, that was the same guy, you know? And mm-hmm. um, in there, he still, um, it was lit, said that he was teaching at the New York, wait, is that what it's called? The New York Studios? Yeah, the Studio on School. 8, mm-hmm. uh, on 8th Street. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't really know how to contact him or anything, so I wrote a letter. I just went, I wrote him a letter, and I said, you know, I'm sure you won't remember me. I, I was the son of blah 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 I was that I was a little kid and I just wanted to thank you for telling me these stories and it was a big inspiration and you know since then I've spent my life playing music and you know that was one of the one of those you know he had really given me something way back then that I still remembered and he just wrote him this letter really not knowing if he'd ever get it or what, but I brought it to the brought it to the school, and there was like a information desk, and I said, <laughs> you know, is he here? And and they said, well, he comes in just once a week now, but we'll 
I'll give it to him. I didn't know if he'd even get it. And then not long after that, I got a, a letter back from him saying, you know, he didn't even, he, you know, his, I kind of flipped him out too, I guess, because he had actually come to see me. I couldn't believe that he knew who I was, but <laughs> he didn't know that I was that kid from back then. Right. He said he'd like what you're saying. You had come to see me play at the van. He said he'd actually come to see me, hmm. but he didn't make that connection that I was the son of the blah blah blah. <laughs> so, and then you know, then we it just immediately we we met up and remember that first day we met. We went into Washington Square Park. My, my wife was there too, and just sat on this bench, and it was like just all the stories and that was just incredible to reconnect like that. And then, you know, we really, from that point, it's like we really became friends. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, um, as I recall, it was in one of those Washington square park get togethers where he said something about drawing being a worthy endeavor. And that's another one of those, like all just those few words. Like, <laughs> I have another friend who lives from Texas, but he plays banjo. And he said, one time he just said, "Music is good," and that was like that was it was one of the, that that. Just every once in a while, you hear some kind of few words that tells you everything you need to know somehow. It's like a so note, it's like a note by BB King. <laughs> yeah, it was like actually exactly. Yeah, it just everything gets distilled down into you know all this stuff we're thinking. You don't need to know more than that. And you know, I think about that like he was just talking about spending his life. You know, he said I wish I could remember exactly what the words were leading up to, but, you know, he said something after all this time, you know, and he's, at this time he's in his 80s when I'm talking to him, and said, you know, after all this time, there's one thing I'm certain of, drawing is a worthy endeavor. Just just the idea of, you know, Mm -hmm. making a line with a pencil is, and, and then when you look at his paintings and his drawings, and it's like, yeah. And it's so applicable to what I'm trying to, I think what anybody's trying to do <laughs> with music or, or anything. You just, when you get right down, you know, just pick up my guitar and just try to find the next, <laughs> try to find the next note. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a. I wrote a memorial for Kajori, which relates some of your um, story there, and I'll I'll send this to you. But um, oh wow! I, I spoke be... I spoke at Kajori's memorial last year, which was at the Studio School in New York. And uh, oh yeah, I wish I could have been there for that. Well, I I I'm happy to let you know that I related some of this account of your friendship with Kajori to. Um, you know, to everyone who came 
uh, that day. And because uh, I was primarily oh. speaking not only of my friendship with Kajori, but of our, you know, mutual love of jazz and, and relating it to some of the musicians. And and so it was only natural to, um, oh, to introduce wow. your friendship with him as part of uh, my eulogy, you know. Um, so thank wow, you. Thank, thank you. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and Charles Kajori passed in uh, December of 2013. He was 92 at the time. And, you know, and certainly one of the last of that uh, sort of second generation of abstract expressionists and, and uh, figures who made the New York art scene so exciting and vital for, for a period of time, at least, the 40s and 50s and 60s. Yeah, and, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's so, so close. With the, I mean, the music that was happening then. Sure. Mm-hmm. It, it's just wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I just checked while we were talking. Um, in terms of a dateline, uh, Crisscross came out in 1963. Uh, you know, Monk's album, and it does. It's probably that record you're remembering because it does have that double image of Monk at the um, at the pianos in that green border, and that was the same year that Tony Williams started playing with Miles. Right. So it's probably right around <laughs> sixty-three or four that uh, that you had that um, uh, you know that experience with Kajori at the house and all. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned the Denver Folklore Center. Um, I wonder, did you know Judy Roderick? Does that name ring a bell as a singer? Wow, that is weird. Uh, uh, I the name is. Super familiar, but I, I can't think mm. where, how, or what. she was a singer. Yeah, she was a singer, and she was around Denver in the '60s, and um, she later had a band called the Big Sky Mudflaps, which I think was based in Montana. She was a wow. terrific singer of blues and some classic jazz, and. Wow, I told the name is so familiar. Yeah. I must have maybe she must because everybody would be hanging around that place or or even playing there. You know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you mentioned Paul Butterfield earlier. Um, Michael Bloomfield spent some time at the Denver Folklore Center before the the whole Butterfield you know phenomenon, um, and um, and I think. Bloomfield related that he showed Judy Roderick some, you know, blues progressions and things uh, while hanging out there. In in fact, I think I heard a reference recently that someone has a tape of that, like, you know, Bloomfield just in his, you know, very um, highly energized way saying, hey, check this out. And somebody was there with what would have been a tape recorder in 1962 or three. Wow. That is, yeah, I keep more and more, I keep hearing of these stories of people that would be hanging, you know, Bob Dylan mm-hmm. was hanging around there and stuff. Yep. When mm-hmm. he was, I guess he was playing in Central City or something, like even before he was in New York. He, that, yeah, it's amazing what happened in that place, in Denver of all places. Too. Right, yeah. Well, I know when Butterfield, um, you know, before he made his first records and got, you know, uh, you know, more prominent, um, one of his sort of hiatuses from Chicago as a young man was some time in Denver. He and Nick Ravenides uh, really? worked there for, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> the... they, you know, that was, they became my, I just can't even, wow, like gigantic heroes of mine. Hmm. I had known they were, there. I mean, I was, it must, all that would have been just, you know, maybe two or three years earlier than I would have been aware of or I mean I wouldn't I was just a little bit too young to yeah no mm. I remember um in a blindfold test in downbeat that you did years ago uh uh, you know something from East West was played either East West or work song and you rhapsodized a bit on how influential the uh, Butterfield and Bloomfield were on you yeah and wasn't unique to me. I think they were amongst those. It's so weird how the the music gets passed around, but they, them and the and the, a lot of you know the British guys were the ones that basically told America that there was this other stuff going on. Sure. Here. Yeah. Or, yep. You know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Bob Belden died a couple of weeks ago, and I was... Um... Oh, wow, I didn't even know that. Oh, you didn't? No. Oh, yeah, he died um, like two weeks ago yesterday or so. He had had a heart attack and just, you know, very sudden oh, uh, death man. after a massive heart attack in Manhattan. Um, mm. Oh, I'm sorry oh, to wow. be the uh, the uh, bearer of that news today. Um, hmm. Well, I'm thinking about Bob because um, there's a quote of his that uh, the Times ran in their obituary uh, that I thought about uh, your music, actually, when I read this. And in this case, it's <clears throat> Bob saying that uh, jazz musicians don't make music that tells a story. And for the most part, it's because they don't have a story to tell except the story of long hours of practicing at Berkeley. Well, I I have to say, Bill, that, you know, in the context of your music, I'm hearing stories all the time. Um, And sometimes it's just a single note or chord that will evoke something. Um, And I just wonder how important narrative and storytelling is in your musical conception and and, uh, compositions. Yeah, that's hard to. It, I would say it's it's very important, but but I'm never, you know, I'm not. It's it's so impossible to describe what goes on because it's not. You know, when I enter into the music, it's like I just I'm in this. I'm in another world that you can't, the only way, you, you can't describe it. You just have to be in there and, and or be listening to it, I guess. And I mean, my hope is that it's, well, I know it is saying something because that's really all I ever <laughs> Like, as I'm struggling to try to form a sentence here, I feel like, you know, music is really my only 
way of really communicating. So I hope it's some kind of story, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not, it has so much to do with everything that I've experienced in my life, but it's, it's never a, I never consciously start playing thinking I'm going to try to convey this or it, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like I'm going to make a story about the time that I fell down and my friend ran over my head with his bicycle or something or whatever happened. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> it's, it just goes so far beyond all that. But Well, I, I think of you as, um, you know, a musician who is connected with a huge narrative, which, you know, oftentimes gets described as Americana. And whether we're talking about the Great Flood or um, a blues dream or, um, you know, uh, Julius Hemphill or, or uh, Ron Carter, um, your music, you know, between the titles and just, you know, how, how evocative... Um, your musical structures and 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 tunes are, um, I certainly think, brings forth something <laughs> that that matches what folks usually mean when they say Americana. Yeah, that I mean, some you know, I get I'm uncomfortable with those those names like that, but mm-hmm. but that's or even or jazz or whatever they sure. you know put different names on the music. But then I think, you know, everything we've talked about today, you know, going back into my childhood and, you know, there's so many that there's no getting around it. That is Americana. You know, I grew up in Denver in the 50s and, but you know, just whatever experience I've had, that's, that's what comes out in the music you know and i mean there's so much uh, you know as we were talking just uh, you know i'd be talking about kajori or, or the folklore center or something mm-hmm. but as we're talking you know i'm remembering what it was like on the taking the bus into downtown denver to get to the folklore center or the what the trees looked like or smelled like or or what my the tire on my front tire on my bike looked like when I had a <laughs> paper router, you know, all that kind of stuff. That That's all floating around in my head at the same time that we're talking about these times, you know, and I, I think all that, I don't know, somehow that all, that's just all part of the, when you start playing the music, all that stuff is in there too. It's not just scales. And I mean, I tried. I went to Berkeley too. And I, <laughs> you know, I practiced and I tried to learn all this stuff. But but when you're really playing, you're not. You know that that kind of that stuff sort of dissolves into some other. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's something that, um, you know, folks I know certainly who love your music feel 
that they are connecting with, you know, story, narrative, uh, uh, something thematic uh, that may be, you know, beyond category or beyond simple description, but um, there's a there there, you know? <laughs> you know I mean, I, that's what I, I hope. I hope that's coming across. And, mm-hmm. But it's it really is hard to, when you start trying to, talk about it or figure out where it comes from or what it is it's really good sometimes it almost makes me nervous to, or it makes it like there's something to being naive or something about <laughs> you know when you're doing something without really sometimes you can wreck it if you figure it out too much. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Do you know the story of Sonny Rollins and Gunther Schuller's essay on... Yeah, yeah. that totally makes sense to me, where he read the analysis of it, and then he's suddenly thinking about it so much that he can't... But I have that experience with... And this is a difficult... Like, every once in a while I'll do a... workshop or something at a school and talking to younger kids and but I definitely have had the experience of like practicing your instrument but I hesitate to say it to young kids but there, there's a lot of truth to it. like if you if I'm practicing something all day I know I need to practice but if I'm sitting there sort of working out some sort of mathematical something or other in my head and trying to put it onto the instrument and then I go play that night and that's still going around in my head it it, it doesn't allow me to be there and where mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be at the moment I'm you know I'm thinking about trying to construct something that has nothing to do with the place I'm at at that moment and sure it can, it can, so, uh, you know, all that thinking and mm-hmm. figuring it out, sometimes it gets in your way. We were watching a film the other night, the Clark Terry documentary, Keep On Keeping On. Oh, I haven't, I've heard that's really good. Yeah, it's, it's very sweet uh, and poignant story, of course, but... Uh, he says, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who can tell you all about the square root of a B-flat chord... But, you know, there's more to it than that. you got to put your own self into it, you know. And, of course, he's encouraging this young pianist named Justin Coughlin, you know, to find his own voice and and, and learn, you know, and develop a story to tell through his instruments. And, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I really want to see that. Mm-hmm. Ron Miles is, is uh, touring with you right now, is that right? Well, he's... He's been part of that uh, off and on, yeah. And, I, and then I mm-hmm. play in his group mm-hmm. too, and we've been. And he's from Denver too. Yeah, that th- was, that's why I, I wanted to ask: Is he a Denver connection from way back, or? Well, no, but that was another one of those weird, like the way it, the way I met him. This is, and I don't know that it had to be maybe even in the late 80s or something, I got a, a a cassette, and I can still see the, the 
because it actually has his same phone number that he has now written on the <laughs> cassette. It was a, he was uh, he sent me a cassette through a, a, it wasn't even directly to me. It was through a manager and asking if if I would play on a recording and I so I listened to the cassette and was like, wow, this is really great and it was really unusual music and I right away I was attracted to his sound and you know he sounded the music was unusual and beautiful and like just struck me you know but I wasn't available at the time he wanted me to do the recording so I sent a message back through this manager you know saying you know thanks a lot but I can't I can't do it you know and and then, but then I had the cassette was sitting on my shelf for, I don't know, a few years maybe. And then I was dry. I remember the I was driving up. I can remember the exact spot in Seattle. I was driving up this hill, and the the jazz station was on the radio, and they played. I think it was Chelsea Bridge. It was a Duke Ellington song mm-hmm. the saxophone player and then this trumpet solo came on and i was like that's that guy <laughs> you know it's like wow that's got to be that guy because mm-hmm. it just the sound got me immediately i knew and then i waited till the end of the thing and they said yeah that was the saxophone player from denver named fred hess and that was oh yeah mm-hmm. ron miles playing trumpet and i was like wow i couldn't look after all just from that you know, whatever it was, a little bit that I'd heard of the cassette, and then later I recognized. So then I got home, and I said, man, I got to at least talk to this guy directly. So I, the number was still on the cassette, so I called him up. And I never, you know, I didn't know what he looked like or how old he was. or I didn't know anything about him, really, just that he was in Denver. So I called him, and it was like one of those, we ended up talking for two hours or something, and I just knew we had to play. <laughs> it turned out that we both knew the same. You know, it turned out we both went to the same high school in Denver, mm. and and knew this Dale Bruning, my teacher, and you know just all kinds of connections. Even though he's like I don't know what ten years younger than me or something, but so from that we set up a gig and. And I went out there, and and also Rudy Royston was on that gig. That's how I met him, who I've played mm-hmm. with a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But that was, it was one of those sort of instant, you know, as soon as we actually talked, I knew we were going to, something was going to. So he's been like a, a brother to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the uh, Solid Sound Festival, um Apparently, you'll also be playing with Sam Amidon. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell That's us a, a more more recent <laughs> another guy. How did you yeah, meet? It's weird. I, I keep telling you how I sort of. It's, it's funny how you. Just thinking when the way the way I met Sam, he would again. It was at the Village Vanguard. He, I think, the first time I ever saw him was. You know, he's much, I don't even know how old he is now. He's at least 
probably 30 years younger than me. But so when I first met him, he was, I don't know if he might have even still been in his teens. And he would, he showed up at the Vanguard and just said, hi, you know, <laughs> he just introduced himself and mentioned some mutual friends that are friends of his parents that I might have known in Seattle. And hmm. He kept sort of showing up every once in a while. And then someone else told me, told me about him. He said, yeah, that guy, have you ever heard that guy play? You know, he's really blah, 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 doing something really different. And I still hadn't really heard his music. And then eventually he gave me a, he gave me a, a CD that was, it wasn't even, didn't even have a cover on it or anything. It just had handwritten thing, Sam or something on the, you know, just a homemade thing. And I, sort of stuck it in my bag and a few days later I guess I was I was somewhere out in Pennsylvania and I had a I had to drive from the middle of Pennsylvania to Newark Airport at three in the morning or something to return a rental car and I, I said and the cause the C D was just sitting there. I said, Oh wow, I should just check this out. I put it put it in the car and it was like you know, it's just the sun is coming up and there's all this fog and I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where I am. And I put the thing on and it was like totally freaking me out because it was, it was all these songs that I knew, like Sugar Baby and these old, old folk songs, but done in just completely transformed in some other kind of way and mm-hmm. really, really knocked me out because um, it's sort of what I've you know I spent a lot of time trying to learn those songs and then trying to find some way to make them use them in my own language or what and he, it seemed like wow he was doing it just full force because I could tell he really knew him inside out and but they were just it was such a different angle that he took. And so then, then, you know, we just started talking more and more and eventually we started playing more and more. We've been doing things together. Oh. He's been a real inspiration to me. And, you know, his parents also, he grew up in a house where his, just singing his whole life, where his mm. parents were, they're sort of, experts in this shape note singing or Mm -hmm. sacred harp stuff. Mm -hmm. They were actually traveled around in the, it was more in the seventies where they, you know, went around and found some of the old folks that were still singing that stuff. And they're like really kind of the, if you want to know about that stuff, they're the people that know about it. And uh, so Sam grew up singing all that stuff with his family, and it's just in his really, really deep in his blood. Mm-hmm. And they were in uh, the Brattleboro, Vermont area, uh, yeah, which is yeah. you know in the Pioneer Valley or you know north of where I am a little bit. But this this whole area of 
Western Mass and um, Southern Vermont, New Hampshire is, you know, pretty rich with um, uh, musicians. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, of a traditional variety and shape note singing and things of that nature are, you know, not exactly foreign concepts um, uh, or ancient concepts around here. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So he'll be with yeah. you. At, you'll be with him at uh, Solid Sound. Yes, I, I think we're going to do. I'm not sure what all's going to happen. I just literally, I guess it was just yesterday. I basically got home and I saw the. I, I haven't even just glanced at the the program. I'm just. I really want to. Actually, when we get off the phone here, I want to check it out and see who. <laughs> I know Charles Lloyd is going to be there. And, yeah, Charles Richard Thompson, uh, trio. NRBQ wow. with Terry Adams. I saw Terry the other night at the uh, Clark Terry film. Oh, uh, wow. Amazing. Nels Klein. Uh-huh. King Sonny Ade. Wow. Taj Mahal. Right. Uh, Taj will be there on Friday night, the same night that you're doing the film. Um, wow. Crazy. And... Uh, all right. Um, see you in North Adams, Massachusetts, at, uh, on Friday, June twenty sixth. And thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It's really good to talk to you. All right. Take care. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Ciao.